0: What's up? This is Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor. We're back today with another, well, I would like to say sermon review, but that, as you're going to be able to see, isn't actually what we're doing. So, in case you're new here, let me introduce you to what we're doing. Every week, when possible, I release a new sermon review. And here's the point of the sermon reviews. To look at them, say, what text did the pastor look at what text texts the pastor use, what's the motivation purpose behind uh, this particular sermon and see if they did, you know, good exegetical work. Did they look at the history? Did they look at the context? Are they looking at what the people that uh, this letter or this narrative was originally told to, or the people that lived in it? Like, is it, uh, is it contextually historically accurate are we drawing those truths out instead of reading things into it because that can be obviously as you can assume pretty dangerous so uh, that's what we normally do we normally look at it for educational teaching purposes to say hey what are the red flags uh, what are the good things here what can we learn from it would we suggest uh, that you maybe, be uh, you know Watch more of this person's uh, sermons kind of as a supplement to your weekly teaching that you would get from your church, your own church. Um, That's what we normally do. And today we're going to do part of that. We're going to use this video, uh, this I'm going to call it a sermon because that's what he calls it. Um, We're going to be looking at this sermon and we're going to be doing some of the similar things. Um, There's no real text use, so we can't say, did he look at it uh, historically exegetically correct? Uh, But we are going to use this as a teaching and training like we would with the other sermon reviews. And by teaching and training, this is what I mean. To kind of catch you up on, uh, give you a little bit longer of an introduction here, um, I need to tell you why we're doing this. (coughs) Sorry. Uh, So we're looking at the church you've probably never heard of this church or if you have heard of this church it's because of a um a post on social media facebook instagram that went kind of viral uh because of what was said in the post and we'll pop that up here just so you can kind of see it and familiarize yourself with it so you can kind of be like oh i did see that or i didn't see it here's the point we talk a lot about progressive christianity within the memes we haven't dived real deep into it because honestly Depending on who you ask, uh, progressive Christiani- Christianity means a little bit different to certain people than it does to other people. Just like, for example, if you were to say a fundamentalist or a fun- you hold to the fundamentals of the Bible, that word is going to hold a little bit different of a meaning to different people um, depending on who you ask and what their background is. So, so likewise, so does progressive Christianity. But I want to give you um, an example at least. And here's the thing. I could be wrong. I'll say this. As far as the progressive Christian churches, self-given title, like I'm not saying that's what they are. They're declaring that. That's what they're saying. Um, One of those is Grace Point. I've looked at a couple others. Um, This is the type of message that you would typically get. Now, again, some of them are going to use some Bible uh, at some point or another as sort of a jumping off Point, uh, the ones I've listened to, it's always a jumping off point into sort of a moral story or what we can get about justice from it or what we can get about humanity from it or what we can know about. Um, They like to use the words divine or spirit. Um, So a lot of the times, if the Bible is used, it's kind of used that nature. Now, that's not the case in this particular sermon. I'm just saying, in general, progressive Christian. Churches normally do that sort of thing. Now, what this pastor is doing today, I believe his name is Josh. We're going to see it here in a minute. Josh is answering the question of what is progressive Christianity? Now, I say this um, so that it's kind of clear. Josh is not the figurehead spokesman of or anything like that of progressive Christianity, but he does lead a church, pastor, a church, whatever you want to call it, um, that is declared like they declare that they are a progressive Christian church. So this should give us a really good baseline, if nothing else of what progressive Christianity is and what progressive Christians believe. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to try not to interrupt this a ton. This is actually my second time trying to record this the first time for whatever reason, the audio did not work. I've tested it. It worked last time. I really hoping it works this time. Um, because it takes a long time to do these. I'm sorry, that was a long, awkward pause. My brain was trying to catch up. So we're looking at this. This is week five of him going through a bunch of the different things that they're talking about in regards to progressive Christianity. That was a long enough introduction, I think. Also, just so we're all clear, uh, let me make sure this is, uh, yeah. Playback speed is gonna be 1.5. All the sermon reviews playback to 1.5 because this particular uh, talk, sermon, um is about 30 to 45 minutes i can't really remember because the whole service is in this video and the whole service is an hour and 12. Um, but i speed him up to uh one and a half speed so we can kind of get through this a little bit quicker i am going to try not to interrupt a ton it's going to be hard the first time i recorded this i interrupted a ton and i'm just going to say hey it was really good that that didn't work because i don't know if it was really i think it was more counterproductive than it was helpful so i'm going to let him say a lot of what he says and then kind of come in and say hey that That is the view of the progressive church. So how would we answer that? What would be the rebuttal to that? Because I'll be honest with you, I don't know if you've had these conversations. I'm running into more and more people that would uh, classify themselves or define themselves as progressive Christians. And there's a few pretty classic pillars, tenets, whatever you want to call them, that, uh, that they hold up as why they are within the progressive Christian movement, church, structure right so anyway all that being said let's get into this very interesting um oh, this is very interesting let's go
1: good morning grace point or good afternoon good evening wherever you are in the world whichever one of those is appropriate we are so glad you're here especially if you're joining us for the first time we're officially in the month of february and february is black history month and here at grace point we're going to honor and observe that theme throughout this month. Uh, You're going to be hearing songs, poems, spoken word, and more from Black artists who are part of our Grace Point family or our friends of the Grace Point community. And and creating this space to hear these voices isn't just something we're committed to this month, it's something we're committed to moving forward. Uh, As we continue to move forward as a community that's becoming more and more increasingly beautiful and diverse in so many ways. So um, we're really excited about this month and really, really excited about where we're going moving forward. Um, Today we're going to continue our series around the question, what is progressive Christianity? Um, Before we jump into that, I want to remind you that on March 14th, so a month from next week, Um, I'm going to be responding to your questions. So it could be questions about uh, something I said in a sermon or something I didn't say in a sermon. It could be questions about something um, that that hasn't even been touched in any of the sermons. So feel free to to reach out. Uh, You can email me at josh at gracepoint.net. Gracepoint has E on the end. Send your questions, uh, your curiosities, all those sorts of things. I'm looking forward to seeing what's on your mind. I'm looking forward to responding to those uh, on March 14th.
0: Okay, so here's the thing real quick. Um, You can't see it, but if you go to this video, which, by the way, hey, if you want to watch this video without my commentary, link is in the description to go do that um i forgot to mention that at the beginning but the reason i mentioned that is because when i first watched this video five days ago it had i think roughly 300 views because of the post i showed you at the beginning of this video and kind of the circulation of it quite a few people um have come over to watch apparently a few of these sermons i'm sure their web traffic is pretty high because nothing gets you traffic like viral post but it's currently at uh, 1047 at the time of the recording of this video um, so a lot of people have kind of made their way over here in a matter of a couple of days. I don't know if that's normal traffic. I would say it's probably not, but, um, anyway, just a heads up on that. Um, one thing I would say is I'm interested in this, the video that he's going to put out as far as answering the questions that are emailed in, because I think, um, if there is any question by the time we get to the end of this sermon of what does he believe on this? Uh, because to be frank, there are just spoiler alert for you. There's not a lot of um, affirmation in the sense of, like, I believe this, like, affirm, like affirmatively, like, cold, cold, hard, no questions asked, I believe this. Um, there's not a lot of that. So, I'm interested to see how he addresses that in this sermon that he's going to put together as far as answering questions. Secondly, I don't think I need to say this, but let's. I just want to say it just so that you hear it from my mouth. I would very much discourage you from emailing him, um, not because, you know, your questions wouldn't be valid, but because I think he's probably are getting already getting a ton of emails. And I can tell you when you get bombarded with messages, because that happens quite often in the DMS, um, it's really hard to keep up. uh, And it's really frustrating to answer the same thing over and over again, especially if you're, if it's people that just hate your viewpoint and that's literally the only reason they're messaging you just to tell you that you're a heretic and you're dumb. So don't do that. That's not productive. It's not helpful. Um, He's getting plenty of emails. Just let that be that. So let's keep going.
1: But today, I want to continue our series by exploring the relationship of the Bible to progressive Christianity. Um, I think we should acknowledge that, that for many progressive Christians, we often have an awkward, even tense relationship with the Bible. We no longer see it as a divinely dictated book that fell out of the sky. We'll have more on that in a little bit. Um, and we can actually, as we read it, we can see that there are some texts that are really just problematic. Texts that, in which God is depicted as, as orchestrating multiple genocides. Right? The Bible has been weaponized in dehumanizing ways and used to support slavery, segregation, misogyny, homophobia, and to trivialize the danger of climate change that it poses to our shared existence. Um, actually, on social media a couple of weeks ago, I ran across this picture, we're gonna put up, and it was shared by a friend of mine. Thankfully, this friend was sharing it as like, I can't believe this exists, but it was this picture of the, the Bible. You can tell it's a Bible, but it's in the shape of a gun that's being shot, and it, it talks about the Bible as a weapon. Now, some of that language is drawn from interpretations of the Bible, right? Um, uh, it talks about the sword, of, uh, you know, the sword of the spirit or something like that, that people assume the Bible is now this weapon to be wielded against those who disagree. The, the reality is the Bible plays with all of that being true, that the Bible has been used in lots of lots of terrible ways. The Bible also plays and has played a really crucial role in the formation of what we call the Christian tradition. So knowing that that's the case, that, that where we are today has come has come through generations of people who have been reading and interpreting and responding to the Bible, what do we do with the Bible as progressive Christians? Now,
0: okay, so he's about to get into it, but beforehand, Um, I've said this in other sermon reviews, um, and I'm trying to be as consistent across, even though, again, I've been blatantly obvious. I don't, this isn't a sermon, but, um, uh, in the classical sense, but I think it would be helpful. So whenever you're you're making a declarative statement, right, of the Bible has been used to do this, this, or that. So, right, he talked about how it's been used uh, in a dangerous manner, how it's been used to prop up, you know, uh, homophobia or slavery or such things, such as that, like, it would be helpful to say, hey, these are the verses, right? So if I'm gonna say it's been, been, you know, used to do this, this, and that, I'm gonna say, so, I mean, people, for example, have used it to do this this because of this verse, this because of this verse, this because of this verse. the idea being that it's a matter of saying, hey, these th- these are the verses that people have used to excuse this sort of behavior and, and then go into some sort of a way to say. But obviously, um, if you interpret it, uh, look at the historical context, look at you know the, what's going on, look at the actual word usage used that are being used, all of those sorts of things. Um, you, you could easily make a point here. Here, Here's, I guess my point boiled down. You can make a point that yes, those are incorrect readings because of proper interpretation, not being done and exegetical, uh, good exegetical work, not being applied to the text and looking at it in a, um, in a way that says, what did the early, what did the original hearers of this hear? uh, What did the early church understand about these things? Um, But what we're going to see is that's not the stance of progressive Christianity. He's going to go into it, but I I just want to make that note. Like, so that, that would be my beef I would have in any pastor that says that, you know, scripture says this, this, or that. Okay. Well, give me the verses that you believe either have caused that damage in this case, or support your view in another case, right? Because Anybody can just like word vomit that the Bible has done this or that or helped perpetuate this or that. But without references, how am I supposed to actually look into it myself? How am I supposed to say, okay, well, you you said that, but like, where do I go to verify that? Other than when you don't do that, here's the danger of not doing that, whether it be in the progressive Christian circle or within, you know, maybe fundamentalist Christianity Bible belt. Right. Either way, you're playing on people's emotions. Right. So in this case, when he mentions, you know, slavery, uh, when he mentions homophobia, when he mentions, you know, uh, all the other things, um, what he's doing is there's he knows his congregation. So he knows the general way that they're going to react to that. Right. Uh, And they're going to they're not going to ask, oh, well, I need those verses. They're just going to go, oh, yeah, I agree. Just like the fundamentalist preacher that's banging people over the head with the Bible saying, you shouldn't do this and you should do this and you shouldn't do this. He's just playing on their emotions because he's 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 preaching to the choir in both, both situations, right? So I think uh, whether it be the fundamentalist pastor or Josh here within the Progressive Christian Church explaining this, we need to be honest in the fact that if we're going to talk about interpretation, which he's going to, but we need to be honest that we, we can't just throw out these terms. Because what's happened is, and I've said this before, um, I don't know if i said it in a video before, but um, the, the irony is the progressive Christian church is becoming the very thing that they, they, they want to destroy, right? So it's just playing on people's preconceived notions already without uh, providing you know, these tools to go actually explore that for yourself. And just like the fundamentalist church that he probably came from and is against, Uh, What's happening is you're you're saying, hey, interpret this. But if you don't come out on the right side of it, like if you don't come out agreeing with me, then you're wrong. Um, Now, he's probably the progressive Christian church isn't going to hold that hard of a stance as hard as the Fundamentalist Baptist church would. Right. Um, But it's going to be the same thing. So if they hand you the tools and say, hey, you know, look at this subject on yourself about gender and sexuality, and you come out on a different point, they're going to go, well, you obviously just didn't look at it close enough. Just like the you know, fundamentalist pastor over here uh, would say the same thing. Say, go look at it yourself. And if you come out saying, well, I, I think there's some nuance here, he's going to go, well, you obviously didn't look at it hard enough, right? So it's the same problem, just a different thing that's happening here, which is why, with all these sermon reviews, why I do them is because I think – that we're all doing a horribly job and for the most part, not everyone, but overall what I see is a really bad job of exegetical work looking at the context and the culture and the the original language. And we are coming and he's going to mention it. So I don't want to talk too long here because we're not too far into the talk, but we all come with our preconceived lenses and then we don't even attempt to take them off. Um, So anyway, just I want to make that comparison, right? Because I don't think I don't think a lot of people see that. I Honestly, until I started listening to a lot of these progressive sermons, or not a lot of them, but the handful I've listened to, they're so similar. Uh, they're just opposite ends of the spectrum. They just both hate the other one's view of things. Um, anyway, let's keep going.
1: Now, I think it's important for me to give a disclaimer before. And I give a disclaimer like this every time I talk about the Bible. I am not suggesting that you should read the Bible every day, or that you have to engage in the Bible to be, read the Bible to be a good Christian. For lots and lots of people, the Bible dredges up all sorts of pain, opens up wounds, and maybe right now just isn't the time to engage the Bible in that way. But I always want to say this, if you have grief around the loss of the Bible, like it was a part of your life, and then your faith shifted and and decomposed, and something new began growing out of it, and now you have this this ache because the Bible was once familiar and meaningful, and now you don't know what to do with it. If that's you, if you have grief around that, um, if you really wish you could somehow engage the Bible in a way that is intellectually honest and is good for your heart and your soul, then I hope what I offer today is a perspective that might give you a glimmer of hope, Um, because I think there are ways to approach the Bible that do just that. Um, i want to begin with this observation from marcus borg the late marcus borg um who has okay so real, hold on had such an influence on my own theological development uh, spiritual development he wrote so
0: we, i've said it before okay um for 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 better or worse who who you get your theology from initially will dictate a ton of what you believe like how you see things right so Marcus Borg, in case you don't know, is part of the Jesus Seminar. Um, he, w- he grew up in the Christian church. Then he became an agnostic, almost an atheist, had a very spiritualized experience, um, really led him into spiritualism. Uh, if you listen to any of his talks, a lot of them he talks about this, the, the spirit or the divine. Um, basically, he uses uh, the framework of Christianity because that's what's familiar. And then he says that this is one way to get to the divine being God. Um, Honestly, Marcus Berg, along with a couple other people, uh, a handful of other people, Jesus Seminar people, basically, um, are kind of the founding, uh, unintentional, I don't think they would would have claimed it, but they're the unintentional founders, basically, of the progressive Christian movement, as far as what kind of moved that forward a lot. If you hear, most of the time, if you hear an interview from uh, an openly progressive Christian pastor, What you're going to hear is that they they got a ton of their theology from Marcus Borg, just like Josh said he did. Like it's, they read a lot of Borg. Um, So all that to say, like, it's important to know who you're reading and like what they believe and where they're coming from. Um, Not to to talk too long here, but me and Josh, I don't know his age, but I would say we're pretty similar in age. Uh, I'm 37. Um, So it's one of those things where, uh, we were probably both in college about the same time, uh, probably going through a lot of the same cultural experiences at the same time. You know, the whole Rob Bells, Mark Driscoll's, those sorts of that whole time in, in life. Um, and we just came out on opposite ends of the spectrum, probably because who we decided to, to read and listen to. Right. Um, so just all that to say that's going, that is going, I can't, I can't emphasize enough that that is going to affect a ton of your early thinking about theology. So you need to be careful about who you listen to. Um, cause that'll, that'll drive a ton. It really will.
1: I, I'm. anyway, keep going. I wrote this conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. Conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. And in my experience, I think he's exactly right. I mean, if we just think about the 30 plus thousand different Christian denominations that exist in the world, my hunch is that it's a pretty safe bet that most, many, if not most, exist because of disagreements about what the Bible is and how it should be interpreted. Right? Understandings and interpretations of the Bible have launched genocides, and they've also spurred selfless humanitarian efforts. It's been used to defend slavery. It's also been, it also has inspired the work of abolitionists. It's propped up patriarchy, led others to embrace egalitarianism. The list goes on and on and on. The truth is we can probably find a verse in the Bible to justify just about anything and everything, and that has been all too uh, tragically evident and apparent throughout history. And it doesn't have to be anything, you can just go to social media and you'll see that many of the religious arguments that break out on social media, and even the political arguments that break out on social media, ultimately come down to different ways of reading, understanding, interpreting the Bible. Before we go any further, I have to confess something. If you know me at all, this is not going to be a shock to you. But I'm going to say it out loud anyway. Here goes. I love the Bible. I really love it. I love it so much. It has shaped my imagination since I was old enough to have one. So when I, what I'm going to do today, some people may interpret what I'm going to share today as being like I'm somehow anti the Bible. I'm not anti the Bible. I love the Bible. And when I offer context to the Bible or when I offer a critique of something in the Bible, of a passage or story, or when I seek to reimagine, reframe, and reinterpret the text, I do not. So a couple
0: things, because I want, I want you to catch that. Reimagine, reframe, reinterpret. Those are the three things that you'll hear a lot of progressive Christian pastors talk about. Reframe, reimagine, reinterpret, right? The idea is that the, the, the tradition you were handed simply cannot be right. Like there's parts of it that are right, but it, it just, it can't be right because there's too much in it that they find conflict in. At the beginning, for example, when he opened up uh, his, his sermon talk here, he talked about there's parts that uh, make God look like he, he orchestrated genocides and they just, they cannot reconcile that in their, in their minds. And we will have to do a video on that. He'll mention, for example, there's a, uh, uh, some verses he says that just they contradict each other. We'll have to do a video eventually on that as well, because I think that would be a really beneficial one. But um, they just can't reconcile some things, even with the rich tradition of, 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 of um, you know, early church fathers, of writings that we have, of catechisms and creeds. They just I, I honestly here's the thing. I'm at a, lo- a loss for understanding that. Um, because that's, that's not how my brain, like my brain works in the sense of, uh, wanting to question things and wanting to pursue the answers for those things and wanting to go after those things. But where me and Josh here would disconnect is that, um, there's, there's such a, a wealth of information that's been passed down that that's faithfully, like we have, we can show that it's been faithfully passed down that I, I, I honestly, there's just a disconnect. I cannot fathom um, this idea that like, you know, I can love the Bible, but not believe in the Bible, right? Because there's a difference there. It's like, I can love a book. Like I can just absolutely love a book. Uh, I'm not much of a reader, but uh, I did read uh, the the book. I don't know if you've heard of it, The Martian uh, or Yeah. And then they turned it into a movie where he's trapped on Mars. I think it's the Martian. I don't know. Uh, But he's trapped on Mars all by himself. Mark Wahlberg, right, is his name. I don't know. I'm butchering this whole thing. But the point is, here's the thing. I, I really enjoyed the book. And then when I saw the movie, I was incredibly disappointed because there was so much difference in the movie versus the book. The book was so rich and great. And when they got the movie, I was like, ah, what are you doing? That's a good example of saying, hey, I really like that book. I, was, I, I talked about that book with my wife for like a week and a half. Just I was like, oh, this was so well written. Dah, 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 dah. Here's the point. I can like it, but I'm not going to be like, I'm going to get like all my authority from that book. Like it's helpful. I, like it, it's really well written. The character development is great. Like there's, there's really good uh, arcs of development. Like it's great, but I'm not going to keep my authority from it. And this is what you're going to see kind of Josh unpack here. He really loves the Bible. Like you would love a really good book that there's not any authority or weight to it, right? And I need you to kind of see that. Now, I, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth here. I've watched this sermon five times. <laughs> that That's the best I can get from it, that he really does genuinely love the Bible in the sense that it's like he likes the book a lot and he's been in the book a lot, but he doesn't believe it, if that makes sense. Let's keep going.
1: Do not do so as an enemy. I do so as someone who loves and values the Bible deeply. I I don't always take it literally, but I always take it seriously. And I think that, um, so I I come not as an enemy of the text, I come as a friend, as someone who loves the Bible, but but also as someone who recognizes the way the Bible I think has been misused and weaponized and misinterpreted uh, in ways that have really not opened wide the gates of inclusion and embrace, but have shut down those gates for so many people. Uh, I I don't think it has to be that way. I I do firmly, fully acknowledge that the Bible has issues. Most of those issues are grounded, I think, in our expectations the expectations that we bring to the Bible that the Bible isn't intended to bear or even capable of bearing. I think we need that. I think that we come to the Bible with a set of expectations of what it is and what it can do and a set of expectations about what our relationship to it actually looks like. And the Bible just wasn't ever intended or capable of holding up those expectations. And I think part of it has been that like, we want to give authority to a text, right? We don't say the Bible has authority, but if we give all the authority to a text, it almost makes us feel like it absolves us of our responsibility to continue the work our ancestors who created these stories and poems were doing, which is Okay, so
0: he's going to continue on with that, but I want to touch on the point that he's got there at the bottom of the screen, which is that we, uh, we bring expectations to the Bible that it just isn't intended to bear or even capable of bearing. Now, here's the thing. This, and He's going to dive into this a little bit more in a different point, but this is the you know, us bringing an expectation to it that it's not intended to bear. Um, he, he's kind of vague on this in the sense that what those expectations are Um, Whether it be like it's supposed to tell us like every facet of how to live life. Um, Of course, that's not what it's for. Um, But it does give us general overlying principles of how we should interact as we live life. But again, that's not the the point of the the text. The point of the text is show the overarching uh, story of God bringing his people back to himself via Jesus, uh, life, death and resurrection. And that story showing of why we need a savior because of how sinful uh we are and what that kind of looks like played out in a thousand different ways in all of these narratives that we see um so it's an interesting concept but i i again it's one of those things where the bible is able to bear and capable of bearing a lot of the expectations that we put on it in, in a general sense, right? Can it tell us the meaning of life? Yes. Uh, can it tell us how we should interact with one another? Yes. Uh, can it tell us what, what the, the core issue with humanity is? Yes. Like There's a lot of general things that it can, it can tell us, it can reveal to us uh, because of just how generous God has been in putting flawed people in this story to show our need for him and what it, and what it looks like for us to, uh, to, to not pursue him well. Um. Now, is it talking about like you should marry that person or you should definitely have that job? Well, no, um, that's a dumb expectation to bring to it. And that as pastors uh, and leaders in the church, we should make sure that people understand like like what the text is for, like wh- why we've been given what we've been given and, and how to properly understand it again within the context, within the words that are used, what those words mean, you understanding like deep Bible study and exegetical work, like all those things are important. Um, we'll get into a little bit more of that here in a minute though.
1: Which is continuing in a journey with God, continuing wondering what does it mean to be human in relationship to the divine? What does it mean to be human in relationship to other humans? What is our place in the world? What does it look like to be a good human being, right? If we say, well, the Bible has all the authority and we just interpret, we don't interpret it. We just, we just see what the Bible says and we do it. Then we're really shirking our responsibility. We're, we're saying that we actually don't want to do the work that's been handed to us by our spiritual ancestors. I think this can be seen in the, hey, hey, don't blame me, I'm just telling you what the Bible says approach. You ever heard that where somebody says something ridiculously offensive and they're like, hey, 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 you can't get mad at me. You got to get mad at God because God wrote the Bible and the Bible says it, right? Like that's sort of, I remember a magnet hanging on our refrigerator growing up that said, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And that was part of that early memory for me. But I don't think that's how it works. Engaging the Bible should actually inspire us to continue following the long moral arc of the universe that bends toward justice. Because at the close of the Bible, we hadn't gotten there, right? We have seen so many injustices that have been uh, propagated and perpetuated in human history since the Bible was written. And at times the Bible, as we said, has, has been used to prop up and support systems and still today is used to support and prop up systems of injustice.
0: Okay, so one, I would love examples. I, I think we there's this assumption that he has that like there's going to be a, like those examples that pop up in people's minds, which is fine. That's great. That means you know your audience, but you're on the Internet and anybody can view this, such as this, what we're doing right now. So examples are helpful, right? So we can say, do we agree with you or do we not agree with you? Uh, and here's the general consensus. Uh, yeah, we all like Christians agree that bad things have happened throughout time. Bad things have continued to happen throughout time from the very beginning to all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, all the way up through the can- canonization of the word, all the way after that. Like, yeah, I don't think he's intending <laughs> To point out the fact that we as humans are sinful and we need a savior. But that's exactly the point he's inadvertently making. Because yeah, injustice has been a thing forever. Sin is a thing. And it breaks everything else. And that's why we need Jesus. Now, the second thing I want you to hear, and he'll say it again. But he says, the moral arc bends toward justice. I am i didn't look this up. I almost guarantee it's a quote from somebody, um, that he, he has really kind of studied and like, like, likes to read. That's my guess. Um, I could be wrong. That's my guess. Uh, tell me in the comment section if I'm right. Uh, but here's the thing that, that, that's a different, uh, narrative of reading the Bible then isn't it? Because as I said before, the, the overarching story of the Bible is telling God's story about how he is interacting within human history to bring back and redeem his people for himself and how he is ultimate and supreme over all other things and what that messiness looks like of us kind of not knowing what to do and how to do it and always worshipping other things but ultimately god wins out. So the the idea here is uh, it's just you he's viewing it from a totally different lens than I would argue T- christian tradition would argue it from um is justice and the seeking of justice part of what we see in the scriptures of course yes god is a god of justice god brings justice we see numerous passages in the scriptures of where that's he demands justice he, se- he tells his people to seek out justice and mercy like to correct injust- so yeah is that the overarching narrative though mm, i guess it depends on what you're looking at right I mean, if you're saying that the overarching narrative is bending toward justice, uh, well, we could agree as long as you think that, uh, as long as we would say that, yeah, we're all sinners and we will all be judged one day. So the moral arc of the universe is God's impending judgment on a sinful people, which Paul talks about, uh, and that's why we need Jesus. Anyway, let's keep going. <coughs>
1: So there's still work to be done. The moral arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice, but we can't stand back as if it was still the year 2 or 27 or 30 or 100 and hope that it's going to get there. It takes our effort. It takes our participation to get it there. And I think there are several misconceptions about the Bible that are just embedded deeply into our assumptions about what the Bible is and how it's best to be interpreted. So before we talk about and maybe try to reframe what the Bible is, before we make some affirmations, I want to start with some misconceptions. And one we've already referenced, and it's a pretty widely repeated one. It's this phrase, the Bible says. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say anything. It just doesn't. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible reads. You and I are human beings. We have a worldview. We have biases that we're often not even aware of that determine how we read the text, how we interpret the text, how we live our lives, who we, who we like, who we dislike, who we trust, all of that stuff. We have this, it's like we're wearing, like I'm wearing contact lenses right now that I'm not aware of because they're working properly. And so we all come with a worldview. There just isn't a place we can ever reach where we're so objective and so like step back from the personal when it comes to dealing with the text. There isn't a place where we can step back and objectively interpret what the Bible says.
0: Okay. Now remember that because he's going to say some things here in a minute that I, in particular, would think contradicts the statement he just made. Because what he just said is we all bring lenses to the text and, and we view the text through those lenses, which we've talked about on this channel before. Yeah, we all do that, which is why deep exegetical Bible study looking at again, I, I'm just repeating things, right? culture and context. Like that's why all those things are important so that I don't just come to the text and just do a real quick blanket read and say, well, the text said that, you know, I should stone people, so I guess we're going to stone people. Like you you need to understand like the context and the situation and why that was said, when it was said, who it was said by, like did they have authority? Did they not have authority? Is it demonstrating sinfulness? Is it demonstrating God's justice? Like where like all of those things are incredibly important. And his point is there's no way you can step back ever, ever step back far enough to where you're not reading something into the text. Well, that's not accurate. You, you wouldn't say the same thing about history, like general history, right? If you're looking at, for example, I don't know. Um, the, the Babylonians, right? If you're looking at a Babylonian text and you have, I don't know, in a series, you know, well, well, series Babylon, if you're looking at a Babylonian text and uh, a text, you find of somebody that, you know, they conquered, right. And you compare those two, you can say, okay, well, you're not, you're just reading those to see, okay, what were the accounts here? What was the account here? What can we work out that what actually happened that day of this particular battle a long time ago? You're not gonna to come to those things and say, well, I guess we just can't know because we're bringing too much of our knowledge to it. That's just, it's disingenuous. So yeah, we can we can look at a text, knowing the cultural context and the words that are used in that particular uh, time and place and what was going on historically around the time that that narrative or that event happened. And we can get a really good idea about what was going on and what was being said and why it was being said and how it was being said and all of the things, right? We can figure that out. But what, he, what I just want you to hear what he said. You can rewind it if you want. There's no way you can step far enough back that you're that you're not misinterpreting the text somehow. Okay, let's keep going.
1: And I, I live with this. I'm trying to live with this awareness that I, specifically me, a white, straight, cisgender, male, Christian in America, that I bring all sorts of stuff with me to the text that I'm not aware of. All sorts of assumptions because the Bible, for example, wasn't written by somebody who was living uh, and doing well in the most powerful empire the world had ever known. It was written by people who were being oppressed and mistreated by the at that time the largest empire the world had ever known. And so when I come to the Bible, I had a lot of work to do on the front end to begin to even become remotely aware of what might actually be happening in a text. That's how that i to say the Bible.
0: That's just that's basic hermeneutics. I mean that yeah. That's all I guess say. like if if a congregation doesn't know that then there's a lot of work that you got to do as far as helping them understand that. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some congregations that don't understand that and need to be taught. Great. Um, I would say that the leadership that's been there has completely failed at their job. Um, But yeah, like I would say a majority of people understand that of course we bring something to the text. Of course, we've got to step back a minute to to take our bias out of the picture.
1: Yeah. The Bible is not self-interpreting we have to interpret it. The minute you read a text and say, here's what it means, you are engaging in the act and hopefully the art of biblical interpretation. And so so we we just need to be aware that this claim saying, well, I'm just saying what the Bible says, is actually a way of trying to limit and shut down honest questions and engagement with the Bible. When somebody says that, well, the Bible, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, they're ultimately trying to shut down questions and curiosity. And I think they're probably doing that because maybe they're afraid that if they think about it too long, they're gonna have some questions and curiosities that pop up for them as well. So the. Okay, so I'm not
0: saying he's doing this on purpose, But this is the type of language you would use if you were trying to uh, train somebody to shut down an argument, right? So the idea here is he's basically set up a scenario that says if anybody comes to you guys and says, hey, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, uh, there's two assumptions that he's just laid out. That one, they probably haven't asked those questions. And if they did, they'd probably be where you're at. They just, they're dumb and they've not asked questions. Um, That was the first assumption. And the second one is that like, you know, you can't rely on scripture to interpret scripture here. Um, that That's, I mean, when Jesus and the apostles and Paul and, you know, other New Testament writers reference Old Testament stuff, you can't rely on the fact that they knew what they were talking about. I mean, I, I don't, he didn't say that directly, right? So maybe that's not what he's saying, but that sounds what it's saying is that um, you can't, you can't, uh, the Bible isn't to be interpreted, uh, isn't self-interpreting. Right. It sounds to me like he's saying that scripture doesn't interpret scripture, which I would say is the, the most genuine way to back yourself away to where you can actually see what it's saying because it's referencing other places in scripture. That seems like it would be near impossible to read anything into it because it's, I don't know, let's keep going.
1: The Bible doesn't say the Bible reads. We make it say. Uh, another misconception, the Bible isn't a science book. It just isn't a science book. One of the central debates people have forever about the Bible focuses on the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, Was the world really created in six days, making it 6,000 or so years old? There's a big boat in Kentucky that wants to tell you that's the truth. Do we have to reject scientific discoveries that point to a much older Earth, to the the evolution of human beings from other hominid species of millions of years ago? The truth is the Bible just is not a reliable source for scientific understanding about how we got here and how the natural world works. For example, we're going to put up a picture. If you were to create an image based on Genesis chapter 1 and the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, this is what it would look like. You would have the earth on pillars. You would have sort of the, the sky and you'd have heaven above it. The sky has doors or windows through which the rain comes. There's this place called Shale, which is not like an afterlife. It's just the abode of the dead. So they're not active or doing anything. Just, when you die, you go to Shale. Um, and, and so it's, it's a very sort of uh, ancient cosmology. It's a cosmology that we don't embrace today. Because-
0: okay, so time out real quick. So let's just grab the Bible real quick or the Bible. And let's go to Genesis chapter one. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter one. Because Josh's claim here is that by reading Genesis one, you would get that picture. Now Genesis chapter one doesn't mention Sheol. You do have that in other places, for example. Um, And there is a very uh, poetic picture. In fact, uh, we don't have time for this, unfortunately, but go read Genesis one. Here's the point, There there are things that obviously need to be understood about the Bible, as I said five minutes ago. The idea is you have to understand uh, different genres of literature within the Bible, poetic, uh, for example, narrative, for example, right? Um, Figurative language, poetry, but sometimes that's not contained just within a particular genre, it's used within maybe another genre, right? The idea is you have to understand what you're reading and the intent the author is trying to get across by using the words, that they're using now i'm not saying that answers every question as far as what he's talking about as far as ancient cosmology but the idea here is that some of the things that he's referencing the earth on pillars for example uh, windows in heaven for the rain for example are things that are used in poetic literature now it would be uh, easier if he had referenced the actual verses so that we could you know actually go and find out ourselves whether that's you know, what kind of genre of literature it is he, all he references is Genesis chapter one, which does not mention all of the things that he's mentioning in this picture here. Go read it yourself. Um, The idea uh, is that uh, he's previously told us that we need to take our lenses off uh, and and understand that we bring things to the text, but then he ignores here that, um, that, you know, there's different genres of literature within the Bible. He just told us that there's no way that we can step back far enough to understand scripture at all, but we definitely can't understand scripture this way, right? It's just it, – it, it's confusing. I'm not trying – I'm not saying he's being intellectually disingenuous because he's a smart guy. I'm sure he's a smart guy. He probably went to seminary, probably reads a lot of books. Uh, he probably knows – Greek, probably Hebrew, right? So I'm not saying he's dumb. He's far more educated. He's far more educated than I am. That's why it's a little concerning here that he's not even mentioning different genres of literature when he's saying that, well, this is what we get. Look at the picture. These people are stupid. Um, It's just, I don't find this incredibly helpful because it is saying, hey, as progressive Christians, we believe this. Well, at the same time, demonizing the other side now i'm not saying you can't criticize the other side sure go for it i criticize I, I'm, I am currently criticizing progressive christianity but the idea here is that be be honest about it i think i am if i'm not being about honest about it please comment i would love i mean maybe i'm just not seeing something right um but the idea here is that at least if we're going to be critical of something that we're honest about it So when we bring up a picture and say, hey, this is what Genesis 1 paints, that's not entirely true. There's certain things in this picture that Genesis doesn't paint or certain word pictures, such as the earth on pillars, that isn't mentioned there specifically, but it's mentioned other places in different genres of literature. Um, Anyway, all that to say, let's keep going.
1: Because we've been up there and we have pictures of what earth looks like and it's not sitting on pillars. There are no windows in the sky. And so that's how the early writers of scripture imaged the world. Does that make them bad? No, they were just doing the best they could with the information that was available to them at the time. Right? There's also stories in the Bible about, you know, the sun standing still because it was believed that the sun was revolving around the earth. And now we know it's actually not the way it works. Science is more reliable in terms of how. I think science can do a good job of getting at least the closest of anything else to telling us how we got here. But the Bible and our faith tradition are more equipped to speak to why and what now. Right, science can bring us into the how what the area of faith and what, what the area of the bible i think is trying to get at is okay we, we're here why are we here and what do we do with it why do we exist what does our brief time in this world mean
0: one thing real quick i do want to point out before he moves on from this point he didn't state it outright, but what he alluded to strongly is that progressive christianity believes in evolution does not believe in a little literal six-day creation um, it does not believe in much of the imagery used in the Old Testament to describe um, creation, or what that looks like, or how the earth is held up, uh, or how we were made, and what that means, um, I'm not saying he's—he doesn't believe in the imago dei. You know the, the value and worth we have as individuals because we're made in the image of God, but he would have a hard time explaining that via the path of evolution. So I would be interested to hear his view on the Imago Day. Maybe he covers that question when he does his sermon later. Um, But I just want you to see, like, he brushed over them. But he alluded to that, at least personally, is what he believes as a pastor. If not, uh, he's definitely teaching in that manner to the rest of his congregation within this progressive Christian church. So I'm not saying all progressive Christians hold to that, though I would say that they definitely lean that way if that's not what they are. For you, that may not be a big deal. For me, that's a huge deal. Okay, but let's keep going.
1: And and what do we do? These are the questions the Bible's trying to get to. Uh, Another uh, misconception, the Bible just isn't an answer book or a rule book or an instruction book. Um, The Bible does not contain basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the point of the Bible is. Um, The Bible isn't like, and I don't know if this is still how it is today, but um, when I was a a kid in elementary school in the 80s, we would always like the teacher would leave the room for something and we would go up and get the teacher's edition and flip to the back and, and get the answers. The Bible doesn't have, it isn't an answer book. It doesn't give us, often, actually, I think good readings of the Bible should leave us with more questions than they ever do answers. And so the Bible ultimately isn't trying to give us answers. It's trying to inspire us. It's trying to point us in a direction. It's trying to bring up some curiosity and some questions. But when we use the Bible just as sort of a rule book, it really just becomes um, legalistic and it actually can hurt people because the point of the Bible actually, it's not rules. But the point of the Bible I think is it's trying to call us into a more full, generous and compassionate humanity. He thinks that
0: the Bible is supposed to be calling us, inspiring us into a more generous, compassionate humanity. He thinks. He's not entirely sure, but he thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, the Bible for progressive Christians, as Josh sees it, is that the Bible is meant to make you ask a bunch of questions to your questions and give you no answers, which really makes it completely unhelpful. Like it's helpful in the sense that it inspires your curiosity and apparently inspires you to be a better human even though you never get the answer to what that looks like because you just keep getting asked questions, but you assume things. I'm, I'm assuming that you eventually assume certain things and then you act on that. That's my guess. Um, but the Bible, according to Josh's version of progressive Christianity, is that um, you will never get any answers from it at all, ever. It doesn't tell you how you got here, according to Josh. It also doesn't tell you, any answers about what you're supposed to do here other than apparently inspiring you to be a better human being. Do you kind of see where this maybe I'm having some sort of logical disconnect with the way he thinks, but these words aren't lining up. Um, if you can't ever step back far enough, like you said before, if you can't ever step back far enough to actually read the text without having your lenses on it, how are you ever supposed to assume that the, the The questions you're asking that are then inspiring more questions or at best inspiring you to be a good human is an accurate reading of the text. If you can't understand what the text originally said, because you can't ever step back far enough because you're bringing so much to the text. Like, I don't
1: get it. Anyways, keep going. So the Bible isn't a rule book, answer book, instruction book. The Bible also isn't the word of God. Now, I know this is probably the most challenging point for those of us who have been told again and again and again and again the Bible is, is God's word. The problem is the Bible does not claim to be that. Um, the word of God in the way it's often translated through, in the, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the word of the Lord in the Bible is actually used in the writings of the prophets to describe the message and passion that the prophets were bringing into the world. And so often a prophetic call story, when, when they sort of get commissioned to carry out the work of a prophet, they have this moment where the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that like an Amazon drone flew up and dropped off a package, they opened up, and there's a scroll, and they're supposed to read the, this Bible to people? No, the word of the Lord was more it was more charismatic. It was more something, it was a fire trapped in the bones. And it was often calling an unjust people to do justice, um, to, to live compassionately, and to care about those around them who were on the receiving end of all the injustices of society.
0: Okay, so he's going to keep going, but I'll forget these points if I don't touch them right now. One, I don't know of anybody that says, hey, the Bible says that it, it 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 itself is the word of God. Now there is, there's references, right? So Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says all scriptures God breathed, right? He's referring, specifically in the context, he's referring back to the scriptures um, that they would have referenced, which is the, the the Torah and the Mosaic law and all of the things, the prophets, uh, that Jesus said, all of these things talk about me. So, These are the things that Paul's referencing, uh, specifically in that context. Now, uh, later on, and here's the thing. I know that he knows this, but he doesn't mention it as far as how the canon was put together, uh, why certain books were put in there. Um, All of it's incredibly interesting. We cover part of it in our video uh, about um, uh, Christian living, uh, but we just touch on it. We don't really dive too much into it. But the entire thing is incredibly um, just amazing about how things, uh, these councils, uh, came together. They discussed, they prayed, they, they went over to, to see, you know, what, what, what lined up with the teachings that they knew to be true, what didn't line up. So they didn't include those things. Like it's all just this amazing story of God's graciousness to give us his word so we can understand, uh, who he is. But all that being said, um, nobody I know says that, uh, well, the Bible says it's the Bible. Duh. Um, there's a lot of ways that we, we can uh, say that we know that these, these texts are accurate as far as the manuscripts going back uh, and having uh, really early manuscripts and seeing that we have uh, lots of different copies of them so we can trust the reliability, all that to say um, uh, we, we can trust in the scriptures. The other point he makes here is that uh, he, he references the prophets and the word of the Lord coming to them and what that looked like and just being dropped out of the sky. And of course, again, hopefully your congregation, hopefully you know that that's not how it worked. Um, it's not like the, the, the Bible that we have was dropped out of the sky, which is something he alludes to some people actually believing. I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm just saying that by and large, I would say that they are the minority of minorities that actually believe the Bible was dropped out of the sky. Um, again, there's some leadership issues there in that church if that's what they believe, um, but nobody, n- nobody I have ever talked to believes that. Secondly, he's talking about how the prophet's job was to declare, you know, they needed to do justice and take care of the marginalized and the poor and the thing. Yeah, that was part of the the message of the the the, um, the prophets. Uh, the other message of the prophets, um, that we are conveniently ignoring here is them calling the people back to worshiping the Lord because they had worshiped other, uh, other gods. Um, they had been adulterous in their covenant to the Lord and over and over again, um, God calls them back, um, sometimes gently, sometimes he calls them back by letting other evil nations conquer them and take them off to exile. Like that happens, um, We're conveniently ignoring that that is the message of the prophet sometimes. Um, It's not just about justice and injustice. It's about calling the people back to God um, because they've been very adulterous uh, in their worship. But again, we're conveniently ignoring that. So again, this is what I'm talking about. If you're gonna critique something, fine. Please ask questions, but don't leave out the parts you don't agree with. It's just not helpful.
1: it was a way of talking about the, the source of inspiration, the source of the inspiration of the message they were bringing. So, in that sense, the Bible does contain some of God's word, in the sense that it contains these stories of prophets who believe they're inspired to share. He, I would
0: wager, does not believe they were inspired, because he the way he just worded that they believe they were inspired.
1: These messages, um, and in the New Testament, the point actually is not uh, is that word is always seeking to become flesh. That's the beautiful image John gives us in John one, where the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood right? This idea that the word is always trying to be embodied. And so the Bible just... You see
0: how he conveniently connected Jesus being the word and the word trying to be embodied? He'll continue that, but I like it's important to listen for stuff like that. It just isn't
1: God's word in the sense that it's something that God wrote and dropped down into the world. It's actually uh, much more interesting than that. Uh, tell you something else that's much more interesting. The Bible isn't iner- inerrant or infallible. Um, I, I do think the Bible is far more interesting than inerrancy and infallibility. The idea that, for, if you know what, this, don't know what this term means, like the Bible has no errors and the Bible is right about everything it says. Um, reference Genesis 1 in the cosmology, right? Um, the idea that for the Bible to have any sort of authoritative role for Christians, that it has to be this perfect, perfect pristine thing that has no errors, really misses the point. Actually, part of what I find inspiring about the Bible is that it records different views and it shows the communities that produce these texts were willing to wrestle, grow, and learn all of the time. I'll give you an example. If you go to some of the various books called wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job, um, what you'll find out is that they are trying to make sense of why things happen like they do, why do bad things happen, why do, why do we suffer? And here's the, here's the interesting part, they don't agree on the answer. I think that's a beautiful thing. There is a space. There's space to grapple with big questions. And for me, seeing our ancestors do that in, in, essentially in some of their writings in real time, uh, it reminds us that actually, this is what an alive and vibrant faith does. It doesn't just sit back on yesterday's interpretations because what if we've been given better information? What if we know something else about how the world works? What if we learn a new thing about what it means to be human? And do we have to keep that over to the side and still hang on to this interpretation? No, no we, we, can, we can transcend and include. We can move beyond. We can appreciate how this belief or practice or perspective got us here, but it's not going to get us into the future. And so we have to begin to, to move on and embrace what we've discovered to be truth. Okay, so I don't know if you hear
0: how I, – I would consider it dangerous, that statement is. You may consider it something else. Um, two things, though. One, um, his assumption seems to be that there is a large subset set of people that are outside of progressive Christianity that simply just believe what they're handed and they don't test it. Now, to be fair, that does happen. A lot, which I think is why there is such a large community of people either moving to progressive Christianity or moving to deconstruction, because to be fair, they they were handed traditions, and then in many cases, unfortunately, we're told believe that to believe it. I mean that's just that's just the cold hard truth. This is where I would I would say as the church we do need we, we don't need to be surprised that there's so many people deconstructing or moving to other religions, um, because why would they not? When you told them they can't question the things, when you don't give them the tools to be able to do that, um, whenever you don't give them the opportunity to, to even ask the most basic questions, um, yeah, they're they're gonna go somewhere else. So in that point, uh, I would agree to a point that there are some people that were handed a tradition and just that were told not to do anything with it. Um, I would say by and large, that's not the case. But depending on, you know, the denomination you grew up in, depending on the part of the country you grew up in, that is a possibility. I would say that the reaction to that shouldn't be, you know, just deconstruction or moving on to a spirituality or the divine. Like there's a way to, to process through that um, in a way that's helpful, I believe it would be helpful. Uh, the second thing that I said is that I, I, I see that's incredibly concerning, and I would say dangerous here, is that he's saying when you learn something new, you take this this truth that you knew from the Bible, and you go, well, I have this new information, and this this part of the Bible helped me get this far, but this new truth is going to help me go on, so I don't need to hold on to this anymore. The reason that that's so dangerous, or I, I, the reason I'm just going to say it's dangerous. The reason it's dangerous is because one, it shows that your idea of what is true and what can be known about life isn't found in scripture. It's found in just, I guess, whoever you trust the most, right? I mean, who handed you this new truth, right? Maybe it's science. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's some other random dude on the internet, right? I mean, who knows? Um, there's nothing to test it against. Obviously, you're not testing against Scripture because you said this is now superior to Scripture, and you're getting rid of Scripture. The point is that uh, you're moving on, and this trajectory is is kept moving on. He mentions this a few more times in the sermon, where we have to keep moving forward. Where does that end? Like, where are the guardrails there? Like, what where, where, what's the basis that we test that we we test that new truth against? Because if it's new truth or we learned something new about humanity, okay, like where did that come from? So does that mean in in 10 years, um, there's going to be pastors that are like marrying people to, I I know you're going to say this is extreme, but just bear with me here. Does that mean that you're going to have people that are like, hey, I really love my horse, and I would like to marry my horse. Now, I know you're you're like, well, that's dumb. That's, Of course, you're bringing a straw man argument out. Hey, uh, 10 years ago, nobody thought you would be making up words and putting pronouns to describe yourself. Nobody thought that. And here we are, right? That's a whole different discussion. But I'm just saying, don't there were people saying that 10 years ago that were called crazy and now they were right. So who knows what 10 years leads if you're always saying that, hey, we're going to get rid of this because we found something else that's new and we're going to move forward. I'm just saying that statements here that are so broad and vague are, are dangerous and at best unhelpful.
1: There's a space to do that in the Bible. And actually a vibrant and alive faith will do that. So what can we say affirmatively about the Bible? Well, first I would say this. We can say that the Bible is the product of two communities. Um, the, the, early, or the Jewish community and the early Christian community. Those are the two communities that produce the Bible. And they produced it over time. So uh, unlike what I believed as a kid, and I really did, just is, is like a you know a eight-year-old. This is, was my imagination about where the Bible came from. The Bible did miraculously fall out of the sky, leather-bound with gilded edges, the King James because that's what Jesus read, uh, with our name embossed on the front. Uh, Good Lord,
0: parents, if 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 you have not explained um, the the most basic ideas of the Bible, look, your eight-year-old is probably not going to be able to sit still long enough or care. Uh, of how the, the history of how scripture was canonized, okay? They probably don't care. But you need to at least explain to them that it wasn't like one day God was like, here's the Bible, and then dropped it. Like, they may not be interested in all the detail. But you need to be able to communicate that, okay? Okay, like, please? Because what happens, apparently, is that if you don't explain that, and I'm not saying this sarcastically, because I've known a lot of people that are in the same place Josh is in. I'm sorry, Josh. I didn't mean to pause your face on that face, buddy. Uh, but um, there's a lot of people that aren't explained those things. So when the very easy questions come, they don't know how to answer them because no one ever told them. So then they're susceptible to a whole bunch of different answers because they, they, don't, they don't know. No one ever explained it to them.
1: Anyway, keep going. Um, It was a product of two ancient communities who wrote down their stories and their poems and they wrote letters, never knowing at the time, for most of them, that their writings would ever be part of anything called sacred scripture. The Bible has a context. It is grounded in a time and place. It's grounded in a people who were very much people of their time and place. They weren't living or writing in a vacuum. Their writing was inspired by their own context, by the context of what was happening in the larger world around them. If you go to the Hebrew Bible, what you're going to find is people writing under the context of threat be it the Assyrians or the Persians or the Babylonians, like any of those people, any of those empires were a constant threat to their life and well-being, And they're writing their stories and poems and letters under that threat. In the new Testament, they're writing it under the oppression.
0: Again, in some cases that's true, but he's in completely sweeping over the fact that there's different genres of literature in the old Testament. I mean, he's focusing in specifically on the, the, the texts and narratives that were written under oppression. And that's all he's talking about. Um, which just shows his lenses, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all he's mentioned this entire time when referencing the Old Testament, with the exception of Genesis. Um, that's how he's described the Old
1: Testament. oppression of the Roman Empire. And at times during the New Testament, Roman emperors who would just be as happy to use uh, Christians in the arena or um, as torches in their gardens to light up their nighttime parties, right? You have these, these early Christians who are writing, and they're in a very very different context than uh, you know, I can even begin to get my head around. The oldest parts of the Bible were written between 950 and 1000 BCE roughly three thousand years ago uh, the final new testament book to be written which was probably second Peter, was sometime in the 120s to 150. Um, so the most recent documents in the bible are, are a couple thousand years old at least so we, we can say so all of that was very helpful
0: right that that is what you should tell your congregation as far as of how the bible was put together um with well with the exception of only focusing on the oppressiveness of when there was writing because obviously there's lots of different literature lots of different contexts that happens Um, But by and large, that was helpful, that you should know that. You should know as far as context and culture and when things were written. And that that is very helpful for us.
1: We can say that this this thing we call the Bible was produced by these two communities. Um, It it was essentially their experiences of God, their experiences of the world, and and the way they were trying to interpret and make sense of that. Um, We can also say that the Bible is a library of texts. Right? And, and just like any library, it had several different authors, many different authors. It wasn't just by so we would say the Bible isn't univocal with one voice; it's multivocal. The Bible contains many voices, and it means we should expect to find tension in the Bible as different voices in different texts push and pull against one another.
0: Now, what he's going to get into here, and again, I'm assuming he knows this, because I'm assuming he's he's educated. Um, but there's a thing that we that's called progressive revelation, which means throughout Scripture, God progressively reveals Himself to us. Um, in different and fuller ways, depending on where we're at within his overarching story. Um, so in some places that does create a little bit of tension that does raise up some questions that we can, and this is why it's important for scripture to interpret scripture, because like it answers later or clarifies later uh, some of the things that maybe are a little foggy or somewhere else. So progressive revelation within scripture is very helpful. That's not what he's talking about though. Listen to what he says.
1: And this isn't something embarrassing to be covered up, but actually a gift. So, so, one of the ways I was taught very early on when I was a youth is if you find an inconsistency in the Bible, it's actually not an inconsistency, it's just something with you. <laughs> it's a temptation for you to not believe what the Bible says, right? Actually, there are. And one of my favorite examples is the book of Ruth, which we talked about in Bible stories for grownups. But the book of Ruth was written at a time, it's set in the time of the judges, but it actually was written, uh, scholars believe, during the time of the Ezra and Nehemiah reform. So, after they came back from exile, there's sort of this response of we, we can have no foreigners among us. If you're, if you're a, a Jewish male and you're married to a foreign woman and have foreign children, you have to send them away. And the book of Ruth enters into the midst of this story and the hero, who is the grandmother of the greatest king um, that Israel would ever know, David, that this woman, Ruth, was a Moabite. She was one of the very people that they were trying to get rid of. And she is the reason David came into the world.
0: Okay, so two things. One, if you go back to his point before that scripture can interpret scripture, of course, you're going to assume that there's inconsistencies in scripture because you don't think they can answer each other. Um, secondly, he's talked a ton about context and what's going on. But when he mentioned it there, he ignores the fact that during the Ezra Nehemiah reform, the reason that they said that is because they start reading uh, the text from Moses and, and see certain things were said at certain times because of certain things that had happened. And therefore, they then apply those things uh, because of what, they, what, they're, what they're reading and what they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're they in particular are learning for the first time because they haven't read those books for a long time in exile. So context is incredibly important. And uh, nine times out of 10 will quickly and easily diffuse any perceived inconsistencies there are in Scripture. Now, again, if you grew up and you were told, no, no, it's not an inconsistency and that's all they told you. Yeah, that's incredibly unhelpful. And of course, you would have a distrust for that. But here's the thing. Again, context is incredibly helpful in clarifying perceived inconsistencies. Uh, And again, not that there aren't going to be some that are going to be very difficult, that are going to not necessarily be fully settled. um, But nine times out of 10, they're going to be very easily settled because of context and culture and seeing who said what, why they said it. Again, basic exegetical work. Um, But I can see where you, you would think that there's inconsistencies simply because you won't let scripture interpret scripture because you think that it can't do that. So some of these things are building on the other things here within progressive Christianity, um, that it makes one thing impossible because you're already assuming something else earlier on.
1: The Bible is in conversation; it's many voices wrestling with what what do we do? How do we how, are we, how do we be faithful? How do we make sense of suffering? How do we? And, and sometimes their answers uh, weren't satisfying to them, so of course they won't be for us, right? But that's okay. But the point is to listen to the voices and then begin to add our own voices and experiences to the conversation, and that's not something we need to.
0: I'm not super clear about what he means by that. It's concerning, but I don't want to read too much into it because um, he doesn't see the Bible as authoritative. So it's not like he's saying you need to add your own authoritative verse in it, but it is almost saying that he, he's almost saying, and I could be misunderstanding him here, that your truth is just as equal with, with what the Bible says is true. And if that's the case, I can also see where he would say that you can dis, you can get rid of the Bible and can, you know, pursue this other truth, because if your truth is equal with Scripture, then they're interchangeable. Uh, if that's what he's saying.
1: I need to cover up or be embarrassed about but the interesting ways the Bible displays that tension is something we actually I think should see as a gift. And I also think this: the Bible is a human response to it, the experience of God. The Bible doesn't have the full and final word about God, about what God is, who God is, what God's like. But instead, invites us to keep going and to keep discovering the experiences of our ancestors. We're not meant to keep us from our own. Actually, the experiences of our ancestors were meant to, of course, warn us at times. Um, They were meant to inspire us. And they were meant, I think, to push us forward, to have our own experiences of God, to have our own experiences of spirit, and and to learn and to grow. It's almost like so many of us were handed a a, a faith that had no room for anything other than repeating the interpretations of the past.
0: Okay. So one, the thing he just said is just, again, he's showing his cards here that I would almost, I mean, I would wager... (laughs) that he grew up in a church that absolutely refused to let him ask questions. Um, I can almost guarantee it. Uh, So when he started pursuing those questions in places that allowed that, um, he probably ran into some people that weren't Orthodox and were on the crazy train. Um, And he picked that up, Marcus Borg, for example. The first thing he said uh, initially was that the that the bible um can't contain and tell us all about who god is now in a way i agree with him in the sense that like we are very finite beings in the sense that there's no way we can understand the um the mind of god and how he operates and why he does what he does Job, for example is a great example of, of that concept um But what he means is within his context, within this progressive Christian context, is that the Bible is, it can't tell you all about God in the sense that it's not the only way to understand who God is. Now, you wouldn't know this unless you went to their website. So this isn't something that obviously he's saying here. But they believe, this church believes, that Christianity is one of many frameworks uh, in which to get to the divine or the spirit. Um, Jesus being, um, not God, uh, but as much as, uh, like a, a, highly spiritualized individual in touch with his inner self, um, was basically how they described it in one of their videos. Um, I'm sure I'm wording that wrong, but that's essentially the gist of it. Um, now again, I'm not saying all progressive Christians hold to that. Um, but this particular church that declares himself to be progressive Christian does, so we're using them as the
1: baseline here. Um, let's keep going. In reality, faith is something so much more. I think it's the next point. I think the Bible is living and dynamic. The Bible doesn't always represent the highest or best way. right? There are some things in the Bible that if you were to just stop and say, this is the best perspective, then we would be, and unfortunately lots of people do this, but we would end up um, supporting all sorts of dehumanizing, unhelpful, catastrophic perspectives. Uh, and, and so this idea that the Bible says everything that needs to be said in the best and fullest way, it's just not true. But I think the Bible does show us the movement. I think the bible does show us the direction of the arc, because even in some of the worst texts in the bible they actually show small maybe not all but in many they actually show a small incremental movement forward not what we would say gosh i wish they would have moved like, massively forward but for them in their time and place an incremental move forward i think we're experiencing that in our own time and place
0: i've got some comments after this and what he said so i want to stop here and talk about this one specifically this is what happens like this point of view is what happens when it's the logical conclusion to what he said before Okay, so if you don't see the Bible as an authoritative book, if you don't see it as God's gift to us, God's word of how to um, pursue him, what that looks like, um, how we are to live, the change that happens inside of us. um, If you if you see it as a history book that you love, granted, but a history book, nonetheless, you're going to come to the conclusion that um, it's going to fall short in certain areas. You just are you're going to say that there's things in there that you don't agree with and you can't understand because you're reading it as a history book. You're not reading it as God's, uh, overarching story of humanity and himself. Like you're not, you're not reading it that way. So you're, you're coming at it at a way that, and th- I think this is the biggest chasm between progressive Christianity and what I would consider Orthodox Christianity or traditional Christianity in the sense that, um, Orthodox Christianity says that this is a divinely inspired book. Um, whereas progressive Christianity would say it's a bunch of guys that tried to do their best within their context to understand who God was, but primarily it's history. So whenever somebody from an Orthodox Christian perspective is arguing or discussing with a, somebody from a progressive Christian context, we have to understand that you, you're talking two different languages, like these are not the same things. These are two entirely different languages that are simply tied together with the term Christian, but that does not mean the same thing. And you need to understand that this is a ty- This is a totally different religion, entirely different religion that does not hold Jesus as God does not hold Jesus as the savior of, the, uh, of mankind. Um, doesn't hold to any, if, maybe a couple, if that, of tenets of what uh, of traditional Christianity, of orthodox Christianity would hold to. It's a different religion, which is why there's so much conflict whenever uh, and misunderstanding because it's much like arguing or discussing with uh, a Jehovah's Witness. like You're using the same terms, but your definitions of those terms are not the same. So there's this confusion built in because you think you're saying one thing and they think they're saying one thing and you're not saying the same thing. When you view the Bible as a divinely inspired word versus when you view the Bible as a historical document that has some good truth in it, you're going to come to a different conclusion. And that's what he's getting at here. So let's keep going.
1: There were some things that have been I think and many of us here guys might think were misinterpreted, and misunderstood, and we have been on this journey of learning and growing in concert with the divine and one another, and we've come up with some alternative
0: I hope you heard that. This is I think the one of the only times he says it, but the divine Progressive Christianity is a uber-spiritualized religion that is all and apart from Orthodox Christianity, even though it uses a similar name.
1: of perspectives, and that's, that's not unfaithful. That, I think, is faithfulness. I don't think that's not valuing the Bible. I think it's actually really valuing it and taking it seriously is this role and responsibility we have to keep the conversation going. Our ancestors did their part to move it forward, and we are invited to do ours. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when the, the eye for an eye was written and included in the Hebrew Scriptures, it was a dramatic leap forward that you couldn't just wantonly harm someone. If somebody gabs out your eye, well, you, can't, you can't then chop off their, you can only do eye for an eye. If so they knock out your tooth, you can't cut off their hand, you can only knock out their tooth. It was essentially meant to limit retaliation and violence. And yet, as we've seen in human history, um, we actually at times will take something that was meant to be a positive and it's sort of, we see how, how far can we lower the bar? So that in Jesus' day, Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said eye for an eye, but I tell you, love your enemies. Right, I mean, this is, Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah this was a massive step forward, but we're not finished.
0: what's confusing to me. It's not confusing. It goes back to what I just said. We're, we're we're reading this in two different ways and we're, 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 we're exegetically working through it in two different ways. Um, but Jesus specifically references the holiness code, uh, from before and, and corrects the teaching on it that says, this isn't just about action, but about your heart. So the Sermon on the Mount, which he's referencing here, isn't Jesus going, hey, that was really good, but we need to jump forward again. Um, there's not even an indication of that in the text. What he he's correcting is you've heard it said this, which is correct. You have heard it said this, but I'm telling you that it's actually more than that. Like you're concerned about what you're doing, but it's actually what drives you to do that. That's that that's the issue because they had become um, so, so enamored with, what I was do, what they were doing, like we often do and completely forgot about the heart behind it. So they had become essentially what we would call like, you know, white knuckle moralism. Like well, I didn't, I didn't cheat on my wife, but I just looked at that girl a lot. Like that, that's the idea. Jesus is actually saying, actually, it's, it's a lot more than if you did the action. It's, it was what motivates you to do that. Um, again, different exegetical reading, but it's important to see that, that when you approach it in, in, Different ways, you're going to get a vastly different outcome.
1: And I would say that was a massive leap forward, but we're not finished. We're still going. What you what was in some ways a leap forward can end up justifying a lot of terrible things if we don't continue the forward movement in our understanding and in our approach. So I, I want to leave with this. I, here are a few things I think that for progressive Christians and for me. Here's what the Bible has been. The Bible connects us to the past. I have increased as I get older. One of my favorite images of the Bible um, is in one of my least favorite books of the Bible, um, the Book of Hebrews, where. Um, they talk about the cloud of witnesses that we are essentially running our race before a great cloud of witnesses and those cloud of witnesses are uh, the saints and dear ones who have already completed their race here in the world mm-hmm. and there's something profound for me to think about that all the ways that so many people who have gone before me would have disagreed with my theology and yet they're still cheering me on i think the bible can
0: i don't know where he gets that from it's not what the verse says or indicates as far as they would disagree with me but they're still cheering me on like that line I'm just saying if, if you're going to call for an understanding of how to read the text, at least be honest to what the text says.
1: It connects us to that past. It connects us not just to the people in the text, but all the people that we have known and loved and valued over the years who taught us the Bible, even if they taught us in ways that we, we no longer hold on to. Um, they were in, in that moment influential. I think there's this beauty of being connected to the past to realize that we aren't, we aren't the first, we aren't breaking terribly new ground in so many ways, that we're still part of this thing that stretches back thousands of years, that people have lived for and died for, that people have been inspired by. And yes, that some people have done some really terrible things with. Um, and yet we even need to remember that so that we remember where this thing could go if we don't continue moving forward. So it connects us to the past. It, I think it challenges us and grounds us in the present. Um, but the Bible still challenges us. Uh, it, so, some of these texts, which we, we wanna say, gosh, everything in the Bible, is so bad. actually some of these texts in the Bible are still challenging today. I and mean, this whole idea in the Hebrew Bible of Jubilee, which was, which was meant to make sure that this whole gap between the rich and the poor didn't keep going and going and that people would lose their ability to, to farm their family land because of debt and that would just keep going for generations. Like every 50 years. No, no, every fifty year, we're going to have a jubilee. We're going to start the thing over from scratch. I mean, that was, that's a progressive idea and one that scholars say actually was, has never been implemented in the world.
0: So it's interesting, and this is just a quick call out. Um, it seems like we're just going to pick and choose what is good and what is not good from the text. Now, again, I want you to I want you to see that, that this isn't him just arbitrarily doing this. The way you approach scripture will dictate what you take from scripture. So if you approach scripture as a historical book that you love, you are going to pick and choose certain things. So you'll pick Jubilee because that's a good concept that you like. You won't pick other things that you don't like.
1: But there are things in the Bible, even in the oldest parts of the Bible, there are things that still challenge us, things we would resist and push back against, not because they're barbaric, but because they ask too much of us, more than we're willing to give. And so I think the Bible is a way of engaging with the past being, being connected to the past, but also being challenged and grounded in the present. And then I think the Bible can help point the way to the future for us in that it shows us the arc; It shows us that there's still more work to be done, that there are still there's still more equity to be created. There's still more spaces at the table that need to be made. There's so much work to be done. And while the Bible may not spell out the work for us because it can't, because the, it was, it was, you know, the canon, the last text was written two thousand years ago, but at least it can give us a little bit of the direction, and at least it can begin to show us a little bit of the ethic through which we seek to engage the world. I mean, ultimately, if if we take the Bible seriously, we take Jesus seriously, that and, and Paul seriously, the greatest possible uh, gift we can give the world is love. And if we allow love to guide,
0: and this is the difference. Well, let me let me let him finish. In
1: our engagement with the Bible and in our interpretation of the Bible, then I think Scripture can actually be helpful to us as we begin to forge a new path. Um, into the world to do all the good we can in all the ways we can and to leave the world better than we found it
0: okay so here's the thing i've said it before well actually i said it in this video here that i think what you find is when you have a discussion with somebody that has an opposite view than you that that is that that uses the same words it's confusing because you're saying something and you think they should understand and they don't get it because they're defining that word differently For Josh specifically here, and we're just, again, we're going to say this is progressive Christianity because that's what he's defining here. The Bible, according to progressive Christianity, uh, gives us a general consensus of the moral arc of the universe bending toward justice. And therefore, that is the sole thing we focus on through what he just said here, the love we see projected uh, and taught by Jesus and Paul. Now, just before that, he, he blatantly picked something he does like from the Old Testament while saying there's some things that are barbaric that he wouldn't pick. So progressive Christianity does not hold that the Bible is uh, the word of God. Um, I think he used some pretty bad straw man arguments to point that out, but that is what it is. But I, what I want you to see from this video, what I hope you see from this video, is that... Um, orthodox Christianity and progressive Christianity, this, at least this facet of progressive Christianity, are two different things. I'll leave the link to their website in the description, and you can go check it out yourself. Uh, I, I'm making no leap here by saying that there are they hold to almost no tenets of Christianity uh, in the traditional sense, the orthodox sense that have been passed down um, time and time again. Um, they just don't. And you can go look for it yourself. Please go explore. Drive up that web traffic a little bit more. Um, I don't know if you see it or not. I hope this video was helpful in showing you this. But these are, it's, this is by far and away different than Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Um, this is why I think if you are... Uh, a biblical Christian an Orthodox Christian when you discuss things with progressive Christians. Um, that's why there's such a wall there, such a chasm, such a language barrier, even though you all are using the same language um, because you're approaching that differently. Um, the only difference when you're evangelizing or reaching out to uh, a progressive Christian with the, with the gospel that is different than reaching out to just a blatant non-believer about the gospel is that um, the progressive Christian, as Josh stated at the beginning of this video, has had interactions with the Bible before. They're very likely to have grown up in a church. Um, this is at least my experience with the people that would declare themselves progressive Christians. They've grown up, grown up in a church, but by and large, the churches they've grown up in haven't allowed them to ask questions. Um, have usually been very fundamentalist in in the sense that um, very strict uh, about moral moralistic sort of things, dress, speak, actions. Um, very bad about exegetical work and context, which is why why you see the reaction you see in progressive Christianity or deconstruction. Uh, most of the points that push against. Orthodox Christianity or their perceived idea of Orthodox Christianity is that Christianity doesn't ask questions, uh, or they're only focused on the moral part of it. Um, They don't care about justice. Um, They don't read the Bible correctly. Um, A lot of these, this pushback, by and large, not everyone, but by and large is because they came from a church that just wasn't ran biblically, didn't teach biblically, wasn't open to questions. Um, anyway, I don't want to ramble on too much more. I believe this is the end, but let's keep going and then I'll sum up.
1: That's why I love the Bible. That's why uh, after 20 plus years of doing this, giving sermons, studying the Bible, I'm still just as excited about it as I was day one. Because I believe the Bible actually can, we, we, we can be in tension with it, we can be in critique of it, and we can at the same time embrace it knowing that this, is, this, this represents our cloud of witnesses. And I'm really hoping, I like to think they're cheering us on as we move forward and do our own work in our own day to leave the world better than we found it.
0: Okay, so yeah they fade out to their ending song. So, um, anyway, I guys, uh, I've said everything I need to say up to this point. I think if you have a question, DM me, uh, please leave in the comment section, your, uh, interaction with progressive Christianity. Uh, if you do identify as a progressive Christian and this doesn't match up with what you believe, I'd be interested to hear the differences there. Um, but anyway, I hope this was helpful. Um, I, I, I tried to be as generous as possible but I want you guys to see that these are two different religions this is not the same thing don't do not let the word Christian behind progressive confuse you um, these are two different things at least within the the form that Josh is presenting it here with Grace Point um, these are two different things these are not the same thing and it's dangerous because of that because it can be very confusing to people uh, because it has the name Christian behind it Uh, And then it offers the ability to ask questions, which some churches just simply don't, which is why I would encourage you if you are a church, a biblical church, you need to be okay with that and develop an apologetic to teach your people how to do that well. Uh, Anyway, guys, hope this was helpful. Sorry for the long video, (laughs) hour and 30 minutes of your life gone. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for subscribing, commenting, all the cool things. I'll talk to you later.